Part 1, Chapter 7 of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mario Pineda. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part 1, Chapter 7. Mrs. Good was too intelligently sympathetic not to share that feeling. It made life exciting and she was too much of a woman not to like excitement. But it frightened her, too, a little, and when Don José Avellanos, rocking in the American chair, would go so far as to say, Even, my dear Carlos, if you had failed, even if some untoward event were yet to destroy your work, which God forbid, you would have deserved well at your country, Mrs. Good would look up from the tea-table profoundly at her unmoved husband, staring this put in the cup as though he had not heard a word. Not that Don José anticipated anything of the sort. He could not praise enough dear Carlos's tact and courage. His English, rock-like quality of character was his best safeguard, Don José affirmed. And, turning to Mrs. Good, as to you, Emilia, my soul, he would address her with the familiarity of his age and all friendship, you are as true a patriot as though you had been born in our midst. This might have been less or more than the truth. Mrs. Good, accompanying her husband all over the province in the search for labor, had seen the lad with a deeper glance than a true-born Costaguanera could have done. In her trouble-worn riding habit, her face powdered white like a plaster cast, with a further protection of a small silk mask during the heat of the day, she rode on a well-shaped, light-footed pony in the center of a little cavalcade. Two mozos de campo, picturesque in great hats, with spurred bare heels, in white embroidery calzoneras, leather jackets and striped ponchos, rode ahead with carbines across their shoulders, swaying in unison to the pace of the horses. A tropilla of pack mules brought up the rear in charge of a thin brown muleteer, sitting his long-eared vest very near the tail, legs thrust far forward, the wide brim of his hat set far back, making a sort of halo for his head. An old Costawana officer, a retired senior major of humble origin, but patronizing by the first families on account of his Blanco opinions, had been recommended by Don José for commissary and organizer of that expedition. The points of his great mustache hung far below his chin, and, riding on Mrs. Good's left hand, he looked about with kindly eyes, pointing out the features of the country, telling the names of the little pueblos and of the estates, of the smooth-walled haciendas like fong fortresses crowning the knolls about the level of the Sulaco Valley. It unrolled itself with green young crops, plains, woodland, and gleams of water, park-like, from the blue vapor of the distant sierra to an immense quivering horizon of grass and sky, where big white clouds seemed to fall slowly into the darkness of their own shadows. Men ploughed with wooden ploughs and jocked oxen, small on a boundless expanse, as if attacking immensity itself. The mounted figures of vaqueros galloped in the distance, and the great herds fed with all their horned heads on one way, in one single wavering line as far as the eye could reach across the broad potreros. A spreading cotton-wool tree shaded a thatched ranch by the road. The trudging files of burdened Indians taking off their hats would lift sad, mute eyes to the cavalcade raising the dust of the crumbling Camino Real made by the hands of their enslaved forefathers. And Mrs. Good, with each day's journey, seemed to come nearer to the soul of the land in the tremendous disclosure of this inferior unaffected by a slight European veneer of the coast towns, a great line of plain and mountain and people, 
suffering and mute, waiting for the future in a pathetic immobility of patience. She knew its sights and its hospitality, dispensed with a sort of slumberous dignity in those great houses presenting long blind walls and heavy portals to the wind-swept pastures. She was given the head of the tables, where masters and dependents sat in a simple and patriarchal state. The ladies of the house would talk softly in the moonlight under the orange trees of the courtyards, impressing upon her the sweetness of their voices and the something mysterious in the quiet of their lives. In the morning the gentlemen, well mounted in braided sombreros and embroidered riding suits, with much silver on the trappings of their horses, would ride forth to escort the departing guests before committing them with grave goodbyes to the care of God at the boundary pillars of their estates. In all these households she could hear stories of political outrage, friends, relatives, ruined, imprisoned, killed in the battles of senseless civil wars, barbarously executed in ferocious proscriptions, as though the government of the country had been a struggle of lust between bands of absurd devils let loose upon the land with sabres and uniforms and grandiloquent phrases. And on all the lips she found a weary desire for peace, the dread of officialdom with its nightmarish parody of administration without law, without security, and without justice. She bore a whole two mouths of wandering very well. She had that power of resistance to fatigue, which one discovers here and there in some quite frail-looking women with surprise, like a state of possession by a remarkably stubborn spirit. Don Pepe, the old Costawana major, after much display of solicitude for the delicate lady, had ended by conferring upon her the name of the never-tired senora. Mrs. Good was indeed becoming a Costawanera. Having acquired in southern Europe a knowledge of true peasantry, she was able to appreciate the great worth of the people. She saw the man under the silent, sad eye, beast of burden. She saw them on the road, carrying loose, lonely figures upon the plain, toiling under great straw hats, with their white clothing flapping about their limbs in the wind. She remembered the villages by some group of Indian women at the fountain impressed upon her memory by the face of some young Indian girl with a melancholy and sensual profile, raising an earthenware vessel of cool water at the door of a dark hut with a wooden porch cumbered with great brown jars. The solid wooden wheels of an ox cart, halted with its shafts in the dust, showed the strokes of the axe. And a party of charcoal carriers, with each man's load resting above his head on the top of the low mud wall, slept stretched in a row within the strip of shade. The heavy stonework of bridges and churches left by the conquerors proclaimed the disregard of human labor, the tribute labor of banished nations. The power of king and church was gone. But at the sight of some heavy ruinous pile overtopping from a knoll the low mud walls of a village, Don Pepe would interrupt the tale of his campaigns to exclaim, Poor Costawana! Before, it was everything for the padres, nothing for the people. And now it is everything for those great politicos in Santa Marta, for negroes and thieves. Charles talked with the alcaldes, with the fiscales, with the principal people in towns, and with the caballeros on the states. The commandantes of the districts offered him escorts, for he could show an authorization from the Sulaco political chief of the day. How much the document had cost him in gold, twenty-dollar pieces, was a secret between himself, a great man in the United States, who condescended to answer the Sulaco mail with his own hand, and a great man of another sort, with a dark olive complexion and shifty eyes, inhabiting then the palace of the Intendencia in Sulaco, and who piqued himself in his culture and Europeanism generally in a rather French style because he had lived in Europe for some years, 
in exile, he said. However, it was pretty well known that just before this exile he had incautiously gambled away all the cash in the custom house of a small port where the friend in power had procured for him the post of sub-collector. That youthful indiscretion had, amongst other inconveniences, obliged him to earn his living for a time as a café waiter in Madrid, but his talents must have been great, after all, since they had enabled him to retrieve his political fortune so splendidly. Charles Good, exposing his business with an imperturbable steadiness, called him Excellency. The provincial Excellency assumed a wary superiority, tilting his chair far back near an open window in the true Costaguana manner. The military band appeared to the brain operatic selections on the plaza just then, and twice he raised his hand imperatively for silence in order to listen to a favorite passage. Exquisite, delicious, he murmured, while Charles Good waited, standing by with inscrutable patience. Lucia, Lucia de la Mermour, I am passionate for music. It transports me. Ha! The divine. Ha! Mozart. See, divine. What is it you were saying? Of course, rumors had reached him already of the newcomer's intentions. Besides, he had received an official warning from Santa Marta. His manner was intended simply to conceal his curiosity and impress his visitor. But after he had locked up something valuable in the drawer of a large writing desk in a distant part of the room, he became very affable and walked back to his chair smartly. If you intend to build villages and assemble a population near the mine, you shall require a decree of the Minister of the Interior for that, he suggested in a business-like manner. I have already sent a memorial, said Charles Good steadily, and I reckon now confidently upon Your Excellency's favorable conclusions. The Excellency was a man of many moods. With the receipt of the money, a great mellowness had descended upon his simple soul. Unexpectedly, he fetched a deep sigh. Ah, oh, Don Carlos, what we want is advanced men like you in the province. The lethargy, the lethargy of these aristocrats, the want of public spirit, the absence of all enterprise. I, with my profound studies in Europe, you understand. With one hand thrust into his swelling bosom, he rose and fell on his toes, and for ten minutes, almost without drawing breath, went unhurling himself intellectually to the assault of Charles Gould's polite silence, and, when stopping abruptly, he fell back into his chair, it was as though he had been beaten off from a fortress. To save his dignity, he hastened to dismiss this silent man with a solemn inclination of the head and the words, pronounced with moody, fatigue, condescension. You may depend upon my enlightened goodwill as long as your conduct as a good citizen deserves it. He took up a paper fan and began to cool himself with a consequential air, while Charles Good bowed and withdrew. Then he dropped the fan at once, and stared with an appearance of wonder and perplexity at the closed door for quite a long time. At last he shrugged his shoulders, as if to assure himself of his disdain. Call dull. No intellectuality. Red hair. A true Englishman. He despised him. His face darkened. What meant this unimpressed and frigid behavior? He was the first of the successive politicians sent out from the capital to rule the Occidental province, whom the manner of Charles Good in official intercourse was to strike as offensively independent. Charles Good assumed that if the appearance of listening to deplorable balderdash must form part of the price he had to pay for being left unmolested, the obligation of uttering balderdash personally was by no means included in the bargain. He drew the line there. To these provincial autocrats, before whom the peaceable population of all classes had been accustomed to tremble, 
the reserve of that English-looking engineer caused an uneasiness which swung to and fro between cringing and tricklings. Gradually, all of them discovered that, no matter what party was in power, that man remained in most effective touch with the higher authorities in Santa Marta. This was a fact, and it accounted perfectly for the goods being by no means so wealthy as the engineer-in-chief on the new railway could legitimately suppose. Following the advice of Don José Avellanos, who was a man of good counsel, though rendered timid by his horrible experiences of Guzman Bento's time, Charles Good had kept clear of the capital. But in the current gossip of the foreign residents, there he was known, with a good deal of seriousness underlying the irony, by the nickname of King of Sulaco. An advocate of the Costa Bar, a man of reputed ability and good character, member of the distinguished Moraga family, possessing extensive estates in the Sulaco Valley, was pointed out to strangers, with a shade of mystery and respect, as the agent of the Santome mine. Political, you know. He was tall, black, whiskered, and discreet. It was known that he had easy access to ministers, and that the numerous Costawana generals were always anxious to dine at his house. Presidents granted him audience with facility. He corresponded actively with his maternal uncle, Don José Avellanos, but his letters, unless those expressing formally his dutiful affection, were seldom entrusted to the Costawana post office. There, the envelopes are opened indiscriminately, with the frankness of a brazen and childish imprudence characteristic of some Spanish-American governments. But it must be noted that at about the time of the reopening of the Santome mine, the muleteer who had been employed by Charles Good in his preliminary travels on the Campo added his small train of animals to the thin stream of traffic carried over the mountain passes between the Santa Marta upland and the valley of Sulaco. There are no travelers by that arduous and unsafe route, unless under very exceptional circumstances, and the state of inland trade did not visibly require additional transfer facilities. But the man seemed to find his account in it. A few packages were always found for him whenever he took the road. Very brown and wooden, in goatskin breeches, with the hair outside, he sat near the tail of his own smart mule, his great hat turned against the sun, an expression of blissful vacancy on his long face, humming day after day, a love song in a plaintive key, or, without a change of expression, letting out a yell at his small tropilla in front. A round little guitar hung high up on his back, and there was a place scooped out artistically in the wood of one of his pack saddles, where a tightly rolled piece of paper could be slipped in, the wooden plug replaced, and the coarse canvas nailed on again. When in Sulaco, it was his practice to smoke and doze all day long, as though he had no care in the world, on a stone bench outside the doorway of the Casa Good, and facing the windows of the Avellanos house. Years and years ago, his mother had been chief laundrywoman in that family, very accomplished in the matter of clear starching. He himself had been born on one of their haciendas. His name was Bonifacio, and Don José, crossing the street about five o'clock to call on Doña Emilia, always acknowledged his humble salute by some movement of hand or head. The porters of both houses conversed lazily with him in tones of grave intimacy. His evenings he devoted to gambling and to calls in the spirit of generous festivity upon the Pandoro girls in the more remote side streets of the town. But he too was a discreet man. End of Part 1 Chapter 7